means that we have the um, minute or so of silence is to give honor to God's word, but also to make sure everybody understands there's something different between what Peter said and what I'm going to say. <laughs> I don't want there to be any cloudiness there. Um, I'm hoping to bring clarity to that particular text, but we try to separate and say this is the this is the eternal word of God. And my role is to just bring clarity to that, to try to shine a light on it so that maybe you see something that you haven't seen before or God shows you something that you've seen, but then he penetrates your heart in some way. So that's that's our hope and our goal here this morning. If you look with me in chapter 5 and verse 12, you're going to see Peter's primary purpose for writing the letter. He states it at the very end, and he says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter's been exhorting for five chapters this truth, and he's saying now that you know the truth, now that you sort of cemented in the truth, now... I know it's going to be difficult, but stand firm in that truth. And so I love the picture that we have on the bulletin that you see on the the screen uh, as you enter in this lighthouse with this wave that's crashing against it. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you feel like your life is often like that lighthouse? You just sort of stand there and it feels like there's just an, an endless set of waves And then they may come from the culture or they may come from relationships or they may come from your business or your family or whatever. But there just keeps this, this, you know, it's not just a set. It's just one after another. And you have to remain firm. You have to stand firm. And Peter's wanting us to stand firm in, in those difficult times, primarily for God's glory. We see that in verse 11 in our, our passage this morning, but also because we're, we are trying to, um, We're trying to offer hope for those who live in dark places. Even if you're not a Christian, you live in a life that has this battering effect. And those people who are being battered and and aren't uh, centered on Christ, they have their feet centered on something. And the Bible says that's sand. And as they start slipping, as the sand begins to erode, they're going to look around and say, well, who's feeling the same way? Who's being battered in the same manner? But yet they're still able to remain standing. And at that point, you can be a light, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and then they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, they're they're redirecting now because of your light. They're redirecting their their attention to God. And Peter is such a gifted shepherd, as we've seen over these last several months as we've walked through this passage. He's a he's a veteran at enduring this relentless wave after wave. And we're all thankful that that Peter is also on the varsity squad of failure. I mean, it would be nice if it was a veteran who who withstood every wave, you would benefit from that, would you not? But aren't you really, there's something, I hope, good in you and not evil. But yeah, he's on the varsity squad for failure. So when you fall down, when you feel like, hey, I was supposed to be the one who was the rock, Peter 
and you don't stay on that rock, then you know there's still grace enough for for you in those moments. So Peter's been a great shepherd for us. And in these five verses, verses that we have before us is very densely packed. And the way I thought about it is this is this is a way of Peter giving us instructions of how to stand firm. And as we look at these few verses, the, the way I was thinking about it was not just a lighthouse, but like a, a tree. How does a tree stand firm against the, the hurricane force winds of a life of a culture? Well, we all are familiar with that next month, I guess, is hur- the beginning of hurricane season. And how do, how do these trees withstand the, the blast that comes at it at different points in life? And, of course, we know the answer to that is a great root system. Uh, first of all, you have to have a tap root. You know what that is? That's like the carrot, the, the big root that just goes straight down. It's a vertical root. It, it helps you uh, maintain this vertical stability. And then there's what's called the, the fibrous root system of a tree. Those are the lateral roots that spread out. And so Peter, in a sense, is saying, I'm trying to, trying to shore up your strength. I'm trying to get you to stand firm by focusing on both the vertical dimensions of your relationship with the Lord and your lateral dimensions of your relationships in the church. If you have those two things working in combination, then whatever may come towards you, you're going to have a a lot more success in in standing firm. And so you see it here, verse 7 is the taproot. He says, the end of all things is his hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This, this vertical stability comes through prayer, this communication with God. Then he goes on for the rest of the text, mostly about the, this fibrous root system, the lateral stability that we're supposed to have now in the church. Above all, keep loving one another. You can see the horizontal dimensions here. Show hospitality. You see that in verse 9. Then you, everybody in the church has received a gift, verse 10. And it what's the gift for? To serve one another. So you see this, this clearly unfolding. Peter is saying, hey, you're going to have to have this vertical dimension, and that's your communication with God, but then you're going to have to have this lateral dimension, and that's looking out at the church, and you're loving one another, you're practicing hospitality, and you're using your gifts in a way that builds up the body of Christ. And then he tell, tells you at the very end, the last part of verse 11, the whole purpose of this and he sort of ends like a, a crescendo. I imagine uh, Noah playing the, the symbols over here. You know, he's been tapping away, but we get to the very end and it's, it's just this great moment at the end. And he says that in order that this is everything's building to this. Your your standing firm has a particular purpose. It has a has a trajectory in order that everything God may that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him, to God, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's how Paul or Peter is ending this. And when I first thought about this text, I thought, well, here's the text. I mean, it's pretty simple. You could have put this outline together for yourself. Um, But as I looked at it, I just thought, well, I was going to have one sermon on this. And I thought, no, no, no. Let's have three sermons on this. Let's camp around this because this is so critical to us being able to stand firm. And so today I just want to focus in on prayer. I want to focus in on this vertical stability. 
And then next week, we'll focus on our, our lateral stability. How are we doing with our relationships in the church? How are they, are they strong enough so that when uh, hurricane force winds come, can we withstand it? And then finally, and maybe the, the passage I'm most excited about is just really spending a, a sermon talking about the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is what? Filled with His glory. And so we want to just talk, and that might be the most important thing. It's just, what does it mean? What does the word glory mean? What does it mean, glory to God? How does that make a difference in us standing firm? Well, we'll you'll have to come back in two weeks for that. So this week we want to just... Talk about our vertical stability, this taproot that I'm thinking of, of prayer. Notice Peter's opening statement. The end of all things is at hand. I mean, I'm assuming if this is a letter written to churches, and so probably what happened is a church gathered together in a home, they got a letter or maybe a copy of the letter, and they're reading it. That's sort of the sermon for today. They're going to read the whole letter. And maybe, I don't know, maybe Peter thought, well, I'm getting towards the end of the letter and, and maybe a few people have fallen asleep. So I can say, I can need to say something to capture their attention. So he says, uh, the end is near. And everybody who is asleep, what, 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 what? I don't want to miss this. This is a part I don't want to miss. The end is near. And so Peter's saying, uh, the end of all things is at hand. Wayne Grudem explains this in his commentary. And listen carefully. He says this about that phrase, the, the end of all things. All the major events in God's plan of redemption have occurred. And now all things are ready for Christ's return. Rather than thinking of world history in terms of earthly kings, Peter thinks in terms of redemptive history, meaning all the aspects in the real history have been completed. Creation, fall, Abraham, Exodus, the kingdom of Israel, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the curtain could fall at any time and all things are ready. The end of all things are at hand. And this language is familiar language in the New Testament. Let me give you a few references. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Peter is addressing the crowd in his first sermon and he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. You might remember Paul instructing Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. Mark this, there will be terrible, terrible times in the last days. Hebrews 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So these According to the redemptive plan, we're in the we're in the last days. And I wonder if you've ever thought like me, this is kind of an aside. That somehow it would have been an advantage to live at another point in redemptive history. Like, gosh, if I had been there. When the Red Sea opened up, I mean, wow, that would have been awesome. Or I, I, I was there and I crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Well, that, now that would have been awesome. Or uh, the building of the temple, that would have been. And God's glory coming down. That Man, that, what an advantage it would have been to, to live at that place. Or what if I was like one of the disciples or at least just in that circle. I, 
I really actually got to see Jesus. I got to, to touch him. I got to see what he did. That, whew, that would have been awesome. And somehow you look back on the Bible and you sort of have this wishful thinking that there's an advantage back there. And now I'm sort of stuck here in the year 2013 in Wilmington. And you think, well, if I get to heaven or when I get to heaven is how you should think. Uh, and I see Abraham or I see Moses or I see Peter. I'll, I'll say, what an advantage you have. And I wonder if they might say, what are you talking about? You had the advantage. You were in the last days. You, you could see the whole story. I mean, I was stuck at the very beginning. I couldn't see everything. I mean, here I am. I've just been told to leave my whole family and my country and go wander into some country that I don't know yet. And yeah, it was it was great, but but you have the whole unfolding plan of God. You have the whole you you of all people have the clearest picture of God's objective. Why why didn't that make you more bold? More certain. See, you should be way more certain than anybody in the Bible about the reality of God because you've got the clearest picture. You're in the very last days and God, by His grace and providence, has recorded the history for us and now the Holy Spirit now lives in us. You don't have to go to Jerusalem or Capernaum to meet Jesus. Jesus comes and lives inside your heart and now you're in these last days. This world, this timeline is beginning to close down and you have all this information. So now leave with courage and boldness because you know the picture of God's grace. Whatever sense you may have thought in the, in the New Testament how graceful God would have been, how much would this have exploded that idea? Yes, somehow this Messiah is going to come and he's going to be wounded for my transgressions. But what would you have thought that meant? But you're in the last days. You, you now know what it meant. You now know what it cost. That should just fuel your spirit with courage and boldness because you're living in the last days. Well, I'm preaching now, and that's really just an aside. That's not part of my notes. It's, it's important because when we come to this fact that we're in the last days, as I said in my prayer it might be the last days because Jesus is imminently arriving. We don't know that for sure, the timing. But it could be your last day. One day you'll leave a church service and you, you won't come back. And so it's a sobering moment to try to evaluate where, where you are. You might remember in Luke chapter 13, a tower fell down, killed 18 people. And some of the people that were around Jesus, everybody knew of the event. And they asked the same question you would ask. Why did that happen? Why did it happen to those 18 people? I mean, I could have been walking by that tower. Why was it their time and, and not my time? Is some, is it, was it something they did? I mean, was, was, are they at fault or some part of their past they're at fault? They're being judged or something like that. Can you help explain that? And I'm just leaning forward like, yes, that's what I want to know. And Jesus completely ignores their question in that way. And says, 
Repent or you too might perish. And I don't know that this is why he's saying it, but it seems to me he's saying, see, you don't have the capacity to understand why God operates the way he operates at different points. You do have the capacity to understand who I am and where you are with me. So let's focus on that. Because one day a tower is going to fall and it's going to be your last day. And then the question is going to be, what did you do with Jesus? And so that's what he wants us to, to understand. So there's the first movement in standing firm is repenting. There's no way to stand firm unless you, you've moved to the rock who is Jesus Christ. And so maybe there's a, a few of you here this morning that that's really the first prayer that you need to, to make. You need to repent and say, I'm, I'm, I'm on this highway to destruction and I need to move my position. And I'm repenting and saying, Lord, you take me and put me in a different place, please. I'm praying for that. So that may be where you are. This, this phrase is not a phrase that should cause uncertainty, but cause hope for the Christian. The end of all things is at hand. It shouldn't be frightening. It should be hope, hopeful. And, and even if Jesus comes and the, and the curtain is rolled back as a scroll, and He comes today, or whether... It's your day. He has designed that this is your day. This is your last day, even though it may not be my last day. As, as, as much as you may wonder about that, what should be behind your wondering, and I, what I'm trying to say is behind your anxiety, should be hope. Because it's not really the last day. It's the beginning of all the best days. C.S. Lewis says it so well at the very end in his Chronicles of Narnia. Remember the last book, the last battle? And it's kind of a, it has a dark way of closing. Is there's darkness, there's all this fighting going on, and all these people that you're, you love in the story are being killed, and it's just a, a discouraging sort of moment. And, it, and, the, and it's closing down. This timeline is closing down. And then, of course, they, they go through this door, and, and those who know Aslan, those who know Christ, they're in this great new spot. And Lewis closes his, his chronicles by saying this. This is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story. What a great way to say it. I mean, no matter what kind of darkness may be closing in, when you, when you pierce through this world to the next, it's, it, you've just ended the title page. And the real story is now beginning. That, that should fuel your hope that the last days are good days to be involved with. With this last day in mind... Peter is calling us to action. Notice that. Be, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. There, there's something that you need to take action on. It's not, it's not an apathy. It's so often you think, oh, well, if we're in the last days, I guess I'll buy this for credit, you know? 
Who cares if I floss my teeth? I mean, I'm in the last days. And that can be some sort of mentality that we often have. It's just like, I'm in the last days, so it just doesn't matter. And, and Peter's not saying, no, it's not. You're not supposed to be apathetic. You're supposed to have an action-oriented. And all these things he's asking us to do cause us, cause us or call us to action. And so the first action is to, to pray. And Peter begins by informing us of the two primary obstacles to this action. This is, the, this is the primary action. This is the first thing you should be active to. But then he, he begins by saying, I want to go ahead and tell you the two biggest hurdles to your prayer life. You're supposed to actively engage in prayer, but these are the two big things that you're going to have to conquer in order to really dig down deep in your vertical relationship, to have that strong taproot. And the first one is self-control. Now, now, ponder for a minute that it's Peter telling us this. Isn't that great? Peter, the one who you would say, he needs to work on his self-control, is the one who's saying, hey, I know. I've got my varsity letter and bars underneath of how if you don't exercise self-control, there's going to be problems for you. And I don't know that what he might be thinking about when he says this, but imagine him thinking about Mark chapter 14, where he remembers back to being in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is asking his three closest friends. These are the three people that he's leaned in on. He's leaning in on them one more time. And he says, guys, this, this is the darkest moment in world history. And can you just for one hour, can you what? Can you pray? And he goes away and he comes back and what happens? They're asleep. And Jesus looks directly at Peter. And I, I think he's saying it to all of them, but he's looking at Peter in the eye and he says, Peter, are you asleep? C could you not for, for one hour watch and pray Pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray. Make sure you have that vertical tap root because temptation. Peter, a tsunami is coming towards you. And it's going to be very hard to withstand if you don't have this deep vertical tap root. And I can see it. It's, it's coming. And you know what the form it came in for Peter? A 12-year-old girl at a campfire. Doesn't look like much of a tsunami. Just a few hours later, Peter finds himself around this campfire. And a little girl comes up and says, Now, weren't you with him? And Peter, like a, a sapling, gets snapped. And so when Peter is saying to us, Hey, watch out. Make sure you exercise self-control. I know what's going to happen is you're going to want to fall asleep rather than pray. You're going to want to do a lot of things rather than pray. But you don't know that a tsunami is not coming right at you. And if you don't have that vertical dimension, you're just going to be snapped. I know I, I felt that I've been there. So I'm encouraging as the chief shepherd or as, as your shepherd to to not fall into that particular place. If you're given the option to sleep or pray, which do you choose? 
television, or pray. Facebook, or pray. Getting that one, one last thing on that checklist, or, or pray. You, you must be able to see something you like, exercise enough self-control to say no in order to maintain a stable, vertical relationship with God. Let me say that one more time. You must be able to see something you like, exercise enough self-control to say no in order to maintain that vertical relationship with God. Now, Think back with me. Where did this first occur? Where you see something you like. And you should be able to say no. So that what gets maintained is this vertical relationship with God. Where did that happen? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, what did they say? They saw something they liked. Oh, the fruit, what was it? It was good for food. See, I have a physical hunger that, that always is saying, yes, have one more bite, have one more look, have one more try. It was desirable. It, it met an emotional need. It was good for gaining wisdom. It met an intellectual need. And if Adam and Eve could have just said, you know what? No. But they didn't, and what got broken? Their vertical relationship with God. If you're not able to say no to your competing hungers, then you're going to be shallow. You're going to be like a sapling. And every little suffering, every little trial, every... Pretty, in this next passage, he's going to say, don't be surprised, verse 12, at the fiery trials that are going to come. How are you going to withstand fiery trials? Prayer. That's how you're going to withstand them. I like this little cartoon. I have it in my office. It's on, I have a little clear plastic protective thing on my desk. And so I have it right here because it's so what I would prefer. In the bleachers, you know this? You probably, none of you got, get the newspaper, I realize. The newspaper is a big printed thing that you would open like this and you would read columns of information. And way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, people like me read the newspaper. And they'd have these little cartoons. And in this one, it has a, a guy standing on the side and, a, and some people lined up underneath a banner. They're about ready to, to enter a race. And the banner says... Annual instant gratification, zero mile fun run. <laughs> and the guy who's standing over here, he says, runners to your mark, get set, go. OK, come get your T-shirt. <laughs> See, that's what I prefer. Isn't that what you prefer? The zero mile fun run. I'm all for that. But that, that doesn't work physically. It doesn't work spiritually. We can't just line up here today and say, okay, you, you got to sit for an hour. You enjoyed some friends. You got to see, sing the song that you like. Okay, go. That's, that's what it's not. This isn't going to do it. 
That's like saying the zero mile fun run. I just came to church. You, you're going to have to look at something you like. You're going to have to look at something that's desirable. And you're going to have to say this. Let's not just practice it. Let's all say this word together. No. Ready? One, two, three. No. See, it's not that hard. It's very simple. One syllable. No. And turn and develop that vertical relationship so when it starts coming at you, when the fiery trials begin, you're not just snapped like a twig. Second thing he talks about is being sober-minded. And Peter obviously is contrasting the, the, your mental capacity if you've had too much alcohol compared to how you should be thinking. You know, if you've had too much alcohol, your, your judgment becomes cloudy. You can't see everything from the right perspective. You don't know exactly what's happening. You can't react fast enough. And he's saying, you know, none of that. We have to be sober-minded. And he understands that Christian can, Christians can easily lose their spiritual concentration due to the intoxication of the things of the world. And there are several, la- several signs of a lack of sober-mindedness. Let me mention three. One, you know there's a lack of sober-mindedness when prayer loses its priority. Imagine you're just reading through this letter for the first time. And he says this, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, so the, 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 the curtain is about ready to, to close on this world. You're, you're heightened. Okay, therefore, take this action. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for... And what, what, what might you have filled it in? For evangelism. I mean, this is the last day, so first thing we've got to do is be sober-minded, be, be self-controlled for evangelism. Well, evangelism is good, but that's not the priority. For worship. Worship is good, but that's not the priority. Organization. Organization is good, but what's the priority? Prayer. So, so you know there's a lack of sober-mindedness when, when you begin to, to lose prayer as a, a priority. And Peter's very well-schooled in the, this pri- prayer as being a priority. Remember in Mark chapter 1, and this happens many, many times, but Mark chapter 1 is an easy reference because I've, I've referenced it many times. The whole town is gathered at Jesus' door. He's at somebody's house and he's healing people. They stay late at night. They all sort of go away. There's a few hours of sleep until the town comes back to the door because all these people are now looking for the one who's been healing their friends in town. And the disciples wake up to the chatter, I guess, and they go, where's Jesus? We can't find Jesus. And they go out and find Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? He's praying. And they say from their perspective, hey, Jesus, let's get back in the game. Got the whole town now. And what does Jesus say? Hey, I've been praying. It's time to go to a different town. How many times, if you had spent enough time praying, would you have chosen a different way? Or is all always, hey, this is just the most practical thing. And I'm not saying the practical thing is always a bad thing. I don't know. But see, Peter understood Jesus' priority. 
The only thing that we can say for sure that the disciples asked Jesus directly, Jesus, would you teach us to do that? Is prayer. I would have voted for walking on water. I think that's pretty cool. Hey, how do you feed 5,000 with just a little bit? I mean, that, that's pretty cool. But, but they said, no. See, what happens is Jesus is able to do all these things because he's got this one priority down. It's prayer. So if we can get this down, then who knows what God may do? And so they're getting prayer down. And then you remember in Acts chapter 6, I think it is, when, when the widows are coming and saying, we're not being well fed, there's some sort of miscommunication with how there's the distribution of food, and they're coming to Peter and the, the apostles, and they're saying, hey guys, this is a problem. And what do they say? We've got to get somebody else to take care of it, because our priority is prayer. See, See, it's so easy to have your priority move off prayer. There are all kinds of competitors, even good competitors. And you know you're not sober-minded when prayer loses its priority. One question asked of Billy Graham, if you could do it all over again, would you do anything differently? And Billy said this, I would study more, pray more, and speak less. I would pray more and speak less. You, you do realize that it's possible that God could have done even more. If there had been more prayer. It feels like you're not getting anything done. I'm sitting here. I'm reading. I'm trying to pray. That's, but... But it's time to get to work. It's time to get to action. It's time to get the meeting rolling. It's time to get going. It's, it's time to, for me to get involved. So what? So something can get done. That's what it feels like. And God's saying, you know, all the things you could do in 80 years, I can do in a second. If you just pray, if you just get that taproot, if you just get that vertical dimension down, let's be sober-minded of how we think about prayer Particularly, I want to ask dads, do, do you demonstrate for your family that prayer is a priority? See, your children are figuring out what's a priority. You don't have to say it. In fact, it doesn't really matter what you say. It matters what you do. And this would apply to moms, but I think it's important for dads. Would your children say, hey, my dad had a priority on prayer, or did he have a priority on cleaning the garage, getting the grass just right, getting the boat cleaned up, work? I'm not saying those things are negative. I'm just saying, what's, what would your kids say was a priority? Most of the men are saying, "Okay, let's move on to the next point here." The lack of sober-mindedness is when you become dull to spiritual realities. You can tell there's a lack of sober-mindedness when, when there's a dullness to that there's a spiritual reality. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6, 
Paul's saying you've got to put on the full armor of God. Why? Because you're going to be battling against these things, principalities and powers and rulers, things that you and I don't see. So you've got to enter into that battle and you've got to enter in with the full armor of God. And he mentions several things. And at the end, he says, stand firm and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests and how easy it can be to become dull to spiritual realities. Your, your thinking becomes cloudy and you don't really realize the main enemy is a spiritual enemy and you trade in or you exchange the real weapon of prayer for a program. Gosh, if we just had this new program, that could really move the needle. And I'm not saying programs are bad, but what moves the needle? God moves the needle. He moves the needle through prayer. If we just had this dynamic personality and we trade that in, trade in our weapon of prayer for a dynamic personality, a, a program, and you realize Satan's not afraid of a program. Satan's not afraid of a dynamic personality. He is afraid of somebody connected to the living Savior. And that connection comes through Prayer. Jesus, remember, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes down and he finds a man with a boy who's demon possessed. And the rest of his disciples, the other nine, are there. And that man has come to these men, nine men, asking for help. Can you help my son? He's got some kind of problem. He keeps throwing himself down on the ground and foaming at the mouth and doing all these crazy things. Is there something you can do? And there wasn't anything that the, the disciples could do. Jesus comes down and casts the spirit out of this young boy. And then they walk away and the disciples say, why couldn't we do anything? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer. So somehow, and we don't know what they were trying to do, these nine men were thinking, I guess I can move the needle in the spiritual realm by my powerful personality. If I put this young boy in this program, I guess things could happen. Or maybe because my position or proximity to Jesus, this is going to happen. Satan's not concerned about those things. He's concerned if you're connected to the one who can really make a change. One, one more point, and then we'll close. Uh, there's a lack of sober-mindedness. You can tell there's a lack of sober-mindedness when men who are married don't properly consider the importance of the way they treat their wives. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your... Prayers may not be hindered. And a quote that I used in the sermon from that text, so concerned is God that Christian husbands live in a loving way with their wives that God interrupts his own relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective ministry of prayer unless his life prayer life unless he lives with his wife in a God-honoring way. 
There's a lack of sober-mindedness if you think that you can treat your wife one way and then go to God and say, I guess he's going to fix it. No, that's not the way it works. Prayer requires self-control, a sober-mindedness. Let me close with this illustration. David Mitchell is a novelist. He's written a number of novels. He lives in Ireland. And his most recent one was set in Japan. And one of the characters in the novel is a girl named Arito. And Arito is kidnapped, as are other women, and taken to this monastery. And while they're there, each day a priest of the monastery comes and gives them uh, a drink, a potion. And it's called solace. And it, it clouds your thinking. It numbs your mind. It keeps you in this fog. And Orito begins to realize there's an opiate in the potion. And now that I've been drinking it, my body craves it. I can't wait to get it. But I know that when I drink it, it clouds my thinking. So there's no, no hope for me, no hope for these women, no hope for escape if, if I keep taking this thing that my body craves. And so in the novel, little by little, she pours more and more out secretly to where she weans herself off of the opiate. And as she does, her, her thinking becomes clear and she begins to understand the, the situation she's in. And it's a, a great picture of sober of self-control and sober-mindedness. I wonder, what, what is your opiate? What is the thing that when uh, suffering happens, when anxiety comes, when something's happening... You go and say, oh, I've got to have one, one more sip of this thing. And because you keep running back to that thing, whatever it may be, it, it clouds your thinking. You're not really, really able to engage in the world and you're not really able to engage in, with Christ. What, what is it that you need to say, hey, that may even be a good thing, but I've got to start pouring that out. I've got to look at that thing and say, it's good, but I have to say no in order to say yes to the Lord. Like I said in the announcements, there'll be a time I'll be up here, another elder will be up here to pray for you. And I hope if there's something that's on your heart, some burden, something you want somebody to share in with you, we'd love to pray for you. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we come uh, so we're, we're just like a, this frail little vessel. Maybe I should just speak for myself. I'm just like a sapling. It's so, just so easy in this world of, of computers, of, of speed, to be caught up in some other stream that doesn't lead to life. And there may even be lots of good choices, but the inability to exercise self-control, the, the, the lack of sober-mindedness is so painful to see, even in my own soul at times. But, but, but 
There's no hope for us living in this culture in this time if we don't have this taproot that connects us to you so that whatever wind of adversity may come, whatever report may come back, whatever loss we may experience, we can, even with tears, withstand that. You, you now, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you just whisper clearly to every heart, every mind, hey, today, I want you to see that's the thing that you need to start pouring out. That's the thing you need to say no to. That You need to come to a greater realization of the spiritual battle you're in. It's not going to be fixed by program. Lord, you do your work, I pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.